Hello, I'm Moses. I'm Carrie. And I'm Ryan. Welcome to the Menocast. Today on our podcast, we're going to have a conversation with Pastor Andrea de Avila and River Martin, both from Sargent Avenue Mennonite Church in Winnipeg. We're going to talk about race, discrimination, and the hope for diversity in the church. Thanks for joining us. Ryan, Carrie, this is our final episode of our pilot season, which to me is very exciting just to see uh, the many different conversations we've been able to have, the feedback we've got from people. Um, and I'm just so glad that we got through this. How are you both feeling? We survived. Hooray. <laughs> yeah, it's been fun. It's yes. been, uh, it's been a, a learning curve and a, an interesting journey, but it's, it's been a lot of fun so far. Yeah, it's been cool to hear from people who are listening to it who, like, I wouldn't have thought. You know, it's more than my parents and my aunts that actually <laughs> listen to it. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. Who knows the next time we, like, go to a gathering or assembly, we're going to be, like, celebrities. Yeah, for <laughs> or sure. Or held accountable yeah. for what we've said. Yeah, yes. exactly. Although, Ryan, I think you've always been kind of a celebrity. So then... No. Yeah. <laughs> I think he has. Yeah, Definitely. Well, in this last episode, we're having a conversation that really is not a light one, and it's not an easy one for the church to have. Uh, at least we've seen the amount of polarization that um, stems from this conversation. And in this short amount of time, which really is not enough to, to really dive into all the complexities, we want to talk about race, diversity, um, our Mennonite church experience. And uh, we have the pleasure of talking with River Martin and with Andrea de Avila. Uh, we'll get into that conversation in a bit. Uh, but first, I, I wanted to ask both of you, from your perspective, where you sit uh, in, in your Mennonite Canadian context, do you think the Mennonite church has a race problem? That's a big question. And I suppose we don't want to get in trouble for anything we say, but if I'm being authentic and honest, I think yes, because I've, I've been told that we do, um, because BIPOC people in the church have said, you know, like there are problems, there is discrimination and prejudice happening. Um, and I think it's one of those things where it's not like outright, um, but it's these things that are kind of ingrained in us that we don't realize that we are needing to deconstruct. I read a book this summer, I'm Still Here by Austin Channing Brown. And that was just really enlightening to see all these like small ways that we've just grown up with that are, that is racism at work. Um, and so I think those little things are embedded in our church, just like they are in society, and so I think we have we have work to do. I remember a while, like a number of years ago, someone asked me, well, when did people of color get to join the Mennonite church? And I was completely taken <laughs> aback. And I was like, well, always. And then they challenged me and they were like, really? Like the Mennonite church isn't white typically or hadn't historically been. And I was like, you're so right. It historically was white people. And so at what point did we open up? At what point? were people actively welcomed and that really made me stop and think and i appreciated being challenged on that yeah i think the mennonite church has a race problem in in, in the same way that we, we all sort of have a race problem as inheritors of, of of histories and and structures and 
practices and theologies even that have um, done damage and, and, and subjugated certain groups of people. Um, and we all live with that legacy and we have a responsibility to unwind that and acknowledge our role in it. So um, do I think the Mennonite church has a unique race problem? I'm not sure. Uh, I, th I think this is, this is the, this is the, the water that we swim in, all of us, and um, we are certainly part of that. I, I, I look at our own little church here, and anytime someone who's not white comes in, they're, they're welcomed with uh, almost oppressively. So um, <laughs> it's, I, I see people trying. We don't always know what to do or, 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 or the best way to do it. But um, as the father of non-white children, I, I can say that, that, that my own uh, kids have found a home in the Mennonite church and, and feel loved and accepted and appreciated for who they are. And that means the world to me personally. Um, my my non-white wife is, is Japanese-Canadian, would say the same. And so um, it's a work in progress. We do have a race problem, and uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to, to learn more about how to, how to move forward on that. Yeah, you know, for me, it was, it was pretty much a, a shock moving from Toronto and going to a church that it represented so many different countries uh, and, and um, backgrounds. And it was a pretty small church, but it was very diverse. And there was a very... Um, a celebratory atmosphere about that. And, and that's some, one of the things that I valued very much about the church I grew up in. I think there very much is still this image that Mennonites are white and they're European and it's a certain culture or family grouping. So if you're not Mennonite by name or culture, then the Mennonite church might not be for you. Um, and so I, I, I don't know if, yeah, I think we have in the Mennonite church, a, uh, a race problem in the same way, like you were saying too, that the whole, our whole world, you know, our society has a race problem and the same institutional um, or systemic uh, injustices that can be at play in politics or in education, or, like they're, they're also at play in the church. Um, but I also think like we have a cultural issue when it comes to diversity of you know, what does it mean to be Mennonite? And we still here in North America very much think of ourselves as this, you know, heritage that came from Germany and Switzerland and Austria and then to Russia and then over here to Canada. Um, but personally, I'm thankful that I've been welcomed in. Like my own story is that, yeah, I've been lovingly welcomed into this family with, you know, and my background was not a was wasn't even a factor in that i guess i remember when i joined the mennonite church of alberta in 2011 um there was a there were and still is a south sudanese mennonite church spanish-speaking mennonite churches uh chinese mennonite churches vietnamese mennonite churches and 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 you know they those those churches were not ethnically diverse Either they were they're pretty monocultural, mostly for language reasons, I would guess, and and and, and just social cohesion and, and various things, and so I, I, you know, maybe maybe we overestimate sometimes these these groups. To my memory, all spoke enthusiastically about how they were Mennonite churches. They were, they they embraced the theology. Um, that's changed over time for some of them, but um, and they they very clearly traced their theological heritage to Mennonites, and so. 
you know, it's important to highlight those 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 stories as well. Um, I think it's not um, it's not just white churches that are can be homogenous, and it's not and there are many non-white churches that actually are quite proud to be Mennonite, which I think is pretty cool. Do you think diversity, cultural and racial diversity in the church, should be a Christian value? I think it is certainly. There's theological warrant for it if we if we look at like. Um, how the, you know, the, the book of Revelation portrays every tribe and tongue streaming towards the city of the New Jerusalem and bringing their gifts and everything together. It doesn't have them all separate off in their own rooms. It, it has them coming to the same, and it's, it's symbolism, I get it, all that, but it is a vision of, of, of the many becoming one, which I think is, is beautiful vision. Now, these, these more homogenous groups might be a, a way station that's necessary on the way, as some of these you know, minority groups find their way in a new country or, or whatever. But I, I, I would love to see some coming together at some point where we could have uh, some of that diversity reflected. At the same time, I, I think we often, diversity is a word we struggle with because we, we often seem to want it in some ways, but not in others. Um, I, think, I think many people find the idea of, of racial diversity a lot more tolerable, a lot more desirable than ideological diversity in the church. We struggle a lot more with that. Um, That's such an interesting question, Moses. Like, okay, do we let everybody each go off and find their little box of a church that works for them? My fear in that is like, don't leave the white people alone with their privilege. Like, you know, if we were never challenged by diverse stories and voices and experiences, and you just live all, leave all the privileged people all together alone. Like, what are we ever going to learn? Are we ever going to learn even that we have privilege? Um, that would be my concern. <laughs> so yeah, I think we, I think we need, I mean, but you have to work within, it's a gray line. Like for me as an LGBTQ person, I need to be a part of a church that will allow me to be there. Um, so I can't be in such a diverse church in which that is a problem. Um, so in that way, like I do kind of need a certain kind of church, but I also need to be challenged as well. But there's like a boundary to where, I guess, to where I feel I want to be challenged. I appreciate that. And, and I think, um, that some of the obstacles that stand in our way to achieving diversity are what we want to talk about with, uh, River Martin and Andrea de Avila. Uh, both of them are... Uh, members of Sargent Avenue Mennonite Church in Winnipeg. And I think it was it was about a year ago or so, I'm pretty sure during the pandemic, that I saw some news coming out of Sargent Church that they were engaging in the conversation. And this was, you know, um, there, there was definitely some uh, cultural moments that, that spurred that on, like the uh, the killing of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement, like those kinds of things started the conversation in some of our churches. But I, I, I distinctly remember hearing news that Andrea and River were kind of leading the charge or were willing to enter into some really difficult conversations. And so I was paying attention to that and they were running workshops. They were doing Sunday school classes in their church. Um, and they even were starting a support group for people of color within the Mennonite church, which I thought was like, yeah, really cool. Um, and so when it came to having a discussion about this, 
you know, I thought, hey, these would be two great people to invite. Um, now, I don't know, uh, Ryan and Carrie, if you can relate to this. If you've ever been in a space where someone has asked you, where are you from? And you give your answer and then they say, but where are you really from? <laughs> I don't know if that's been a reality for both of you. Definitely for me, that's happened a lot. <clears throat> and I, I know it's happened a lot for Andrea and River as well. So that was the first question in jumping into this conversation. Just wanted to explore, what does it mean and what does it look like when you're asked this question? We're first gonna hear uh, River's response and then we're gonna hear from Andrea. And then we'll get into the rest of the conversation from there. Yeah, so like you said, this is a question I get all the time. I'd say definitely at least on a weekly basis and on weeks where I'm seeing more people like daily. Um, and to me, the question is well-meaning, right? They're acknowledging that there's a difference between us. Um, but unfortunately where it's where it actually comes from i think is is internalized racism because to me the question sounds like this is the between the lines to me is so why aren't you white right and so to me that question is very like oh um i don't know like because uh my parents aren't white so then by facto i'm not white so it's one of those questions that is meant to bring people together, right? It's like, oh, share something about yourself with me. But what it really does is it drives me farther away because it makes me feel like um, there's been an unnecessary calling out of my skin color. I struggle with that because um, I am really proud of my roots in, in a way that um, I don't, necessarily think that is a bad thing so I say oh I'm from Mexico and uh and and the reason why I struggle with that is because you know like like I'm I mentioned when we were uh getting to know each other a bit and my my partner is from the states and he doesn't get asked that question where are you from right and um the reality is that as much as I also have a bit of an accent. He has a bit of an accent. You know, he doesn't speak Manitoban. Uh, <laughs> when we're with our friends, like, you can clearly tell that he's he speaks more American than, than they do, right? And um, he doesn't get asked, where are you from, right? He's, he's pretty white. He looks like nondescript Mennonite, so he fits... He fits right in, quote unquote. Um, so I stand out a bit more uh, when, when we're, you know, hanging out or when we're at church or, you know, when we're in a gathering. Um, so yeah, it, it it kind of it kind of tears <laughs> a bit. I I want to answer. Oh, I'm from Mexico, right? And I want to share where I'm from and who I am and about my family, and about my history, and about my journey. And at the same time, it's like, why are you asking that, <laughs> right? Because I, I can't just, I can't just pass. Um, and also, when I've shared about my struggle, uh, I remember sharing um, 
how there was a, a really prominent Mennonite leader uh, that I looked up to. Uh, he was he was biracial and uh, they they, you know, they were accused of something and, and I was really struggling because they were somebody that I that I had sought out and 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 looked up to. Yeah. And and I said, you know, they they had been paving the way for for people of color in the Mennonite community. And and now it's like we we've lost that leadership. We've lost that that uh yeah, that that person to 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 show us that that it is possible to have representation within this very white body and they said really you struggle with that like you could very easily pass as like a white Mennonite and and that kind of like hurt it's like <laughs> okay so <laughs> it's it's almost like I'm I'm in the middle for some it's like I could very easily pass and for some others like I'm very clearly different, right? So again, it like really tears at me. Uh, for I don't know, I I struggle with that <laughs> very much. Yeah, no, I I think that those those questions, even even as simple as that, you know, where are you from? Then usually I say Canada, and they say, yeah, but where are you really from? <laughs> I think it it brings up like a uh, an underlying um, disparity between races that still exist. And and I know that we don't want to name it often, right? We we just want everyone to get along and we don't see color and, and all of that. Um and yet at the same time, the past few years and the you know the political upheaval and all that has shown us that that racism still exists, disparity still exists, and we don't celebrate diversity. Um but but we want to talk to you because you are people who are striving for uh, for unity and diversity and to to celebrate uh, different colors and races and cultures. Um, but I guess the first question we need to ask is, Kate, like, why why should we care? Like, wh- what is it? Why does the church care? Why do you as Mennonite Christians care that we're having these conversations? What it is? What is it about the biblical story of, or about your faith that says anything about needing to um, be diverse? Um. For me, I think that as a church, we really need to care about this stuff because um, the church has come from a very white background, right? But um, that's not a bad thing, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, And I think Mennonites themselves have faced a lot of persecution. And yeah, it wasn't based on race, it was based on religion, but um, through that, there is kind of a um, deeper level of empathy that I hold our church to because, um, you know, our ancestors as Mennonites have been through some really traumatic and, and difficult things. So within our own church, we need to strive to dismantle systems that continue to oppress other people. And for myself, like, I would very much identify as a Mennonite, but um, anytime I walk into a Mennonite church or anytime, you know, I go to like a hymn sing or things like that, um, the question is always like, oh, so like, how did you hear about the Mennonite church? Or so like, oh, so how do you like, like, how do you fit in here kind of things, right? 
And to me, those questions um, I would like to see be eliminated, right? And the question not be, so what's your last name? But the question more be like, so like, how are you enjoying things like today at this hymn sing, right? Like more of a a personal connection and not trying to sort you into your Mennonite house. (laughs) You know what I mean? So to me, all of those things stem from um, like an underlying and um, like an understanding within oneself of white supremacy. It's internalized and um, it presents in a lot of really strange ways, especially when you feel that what you're doing is, is good and you're and, you know, inviting someone in and you're welcoming them, but you're not realizing that they don't need to be welcomed. They've been here for a long time. And so I think by dismantling these, these concepts of what a Mennonite is, um, we can really come together. Yeah. We live in such a complex time where so much is possible. And so I think that in in our reality, there are so many complexities that we need to deal with. And one of those is white supremacy. It has been developing for centuries, right? And the church has been ingrained with it. And now we are realizing that not only have, have we married our, our theology, our tradition, the way that we've evangelized, the way that we've done mission, the way that we've done all these things is ingrained with, the, with this white supremacy. But we've categorized people, we, we've built systems that are now separate from the church, but are still ingrained with this white supremacy. And it's partly because of the church. And so I feel like now we have responsibility as Christians to try to go back and fix those things. Because they partly started because of us. And so I, I think we can talk about responsibility. Um, and even honor in, in, in some ways. And I think some people look at or, or want a faith free of responsibilities and, and free of, of any sort of, they, they just want to feel good, sort of, you know, Jesus makes me happy uh, type of faith. And, and I mean, when you, when you read Paul, when you read the early church, is that, is that really, is that really what you, <laughs> the type of Christianity that, that they're communicating? Cause I think we're reading very different Bibles, right? Like that is not at all what they were committing to. Like the commitment that they were making to the Christian community was so tough. It was a hard thing. They were giving their lives to something, right? They were they were trying. They, they, it was a cause, and I and I think that when we make a Christian commitment, I want to give my my life to a cause. 
whether it is dismantling racism and white supremacy, feeding the poor, or, you know, like, <laughs> trying to, trying to keep the earth, <laughs> our, our, our creation from falling apart, like, all of those things, right? Like, it is a cause. It, it is going to be work. Uh, so that is a responsibility. Faith is responsibility, right? Uh, so we need to, we need to think of of faith as that as a work. Yeah, I really appreciate what you guys are saying about like responsibility and kind of the responsibility to look back before moving forward. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit about my understanding is churches often expect a lot of BIPOC people to do the emotional labor of educating us. And I must say, like, I'm aware of that in this conversation, too, um, that as a white person of privilege, you are doing some emotional labor so that maybe I can learn or expand. But I'm just wondering if you can say a little bit about that, of what sometimes the church expects of you in that. When it comes to, like, the church, um, genuinely asking for something from my perspective with an understanding that I can say no or things like that, to me, that's actually very meaningful because um, in a way where um, my my race and my ethnicity haven't really been appreciated or there hasn't really been space given in the past, this is definitely like a way that the church is giving me um, some space to talk about things that are really deeply personal to me. And so there is a difference, I think, between um, putting somebody in a situation where you're arguing against their human rights and then expecting them to, like, remain calm and, like, have that tough conversation with you and, like, carry all of your white guilt and all of those things. But there's also a really healthy place in the church where, um, you know, you're, you're being asked and it's there graciously... Um, being humble and saying like I am unaware of this and I want to be better and so to me that's very meaningful Um, so I think yeah it's really important to kind of understand the motivations behind what's being asked of you and if it's a reasonable amount of work that's being asked of you and if it isn't a reasonable amount of work definitely I think there should be like an offer for like monetary compensation or something like that because you know somebody can't just like come and do a 24-week series with you for free you know what I mean so valuing the time and emotion and really taking the effort to to say like yes I will pay you because what you're saying is valuable I think that's a big a big step as well if you're asking something huge of someone you know so you know before i want to ask about some of the things that you've been learning from these experiences uh that you've been leading in churches and stuff but before we get to that i just want to give a chance to help clarify you you think of white supremacy as a white person problem and i think many white people might have a difficult time kind of understanding how this all fits together right especially well-meaning people you know how how is this my problem can can you just quickly explain how um how racism works uh you know the micro the macro uh how um how that fits into systemic racism what's the difference and then like what do you do when people say 
um, you know, I'm, I'm experiencing counter racism now, right now, white people feel oppressed because, uh, you know, they're now their lives are harder, whatever the case may be, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, sorry. I just totally brought that up and then left it to hang there. But what I mean by that isn't that every white person is to blame for white supremacy and they should all go hide in shame and let the new order take over. No, it's not sinister like that. To me, um, the, the issue is that it stems from a place where you're afraid of what's different. And that has had some very serious implications for people of color literally all over the world. And it's not our fault, right? So the only, the, only, the only problem that we had from the beginning was that our skin wasn't white. And so um, for, for me, I see that as two very different things. White supremacy is built on the notion that white people are inherently better or that they know more things or that they're smarter better whatever and that um you know the rest of us just need to be parented or um taken care of or that we don't know what's best for us and so white supremacy is this foundational very deep rooted um little voice in the back of your head that says yeah but you know you're better right and it's very quiet in some circumstances, but it will always be there. Um, and so what I mean by white supremacy being a white person problem is that um, as hard as people of color work to make it understood that we are also people deserving of respect and that we are also smart people and we're capable and we're able to advocate for ourselves, until white people hear that, and understand it and take it upon themselves to make a difference, to make a change in the way that they treat us systemically and non-systemically, the problem won't be solved because the problem starts with the notion that white people are better. So sorry to all of the white people that felt very attacked by my statement in the beginning, that was not my intention, but this is what I'm really calling to focus that white supremacy is not going to be solved until white people realize that they are perpetuating white supremacy in ways they might not even know. So what she just asked is um, systemic and non-systemic um, racism. So to me, it's very, very important that these distinctions are made because they will come into play when I talk about reverse racism. So um, systemic racism is very difficult to pinpoint. Uh, we call that the blunt end. So what that means is it's very difficult to say, you know what, you're personally responsible for this because it is part of a greater system. So for example, there are big ways this happens, like, you know, refusing to hire somebody because of their skin tone or refusing to serve somebody because of their skin tone or even, you know, putting somebody in jail because of their skin tone or things like that are very clearly um, versions of systemic racism that, you know, actually might not fly as easily today. But there are medium levels, small levels, and all levels in between. Like, even when you, I use this example all the time, but I think it's relatable. So when you go to the makeup store 
and you're looking for your specific shade of makeup um, and you can't find one for your skin color, that is once again <laughs> like a very clear, in my mind, example of systemic racism. These big companies are, you know, perpetuating beauty standards and who's missing, right? And so it's not deemed beautiful to be that shade. And that might not be the intention, but that's what um, can be assumed from that kind of um, systemic small micro racism. But it, it actually is really big and it leaves a big population of people out of even attempting to hit that beauty standard, right? You're just ugly. Like, that's it. That's what society is saying about you. And so that's a small systemic way. Um, and there's a myriad of other ways. So those things are problematic, obviously. And it's very difficult. You can't just walk into Sephora and point at some Sephora lady and say, this is your fault, right? Like, it's way bigger than that. So systemic is involving like very big institutions of power. And so those things um, can be tackled one way. Then there is more of the interpersonal racism. And this is where I really want all the white people listening to like focus, okay? Because this is very important. Interpersonally, when someone comes up to me and calls me the n-word, that is very debilitating and harmful to me. It hurts all of my emotions. I'm like done for the day, like not dealing with anything anymore. So it was, it's a very personal and harmful feeling. When a white person has um, somebody say something to them because of their race, so you know, like I hate all white people, it's a very hurtful feeling. It's debilitating. I'm sure they write the day off. They're like, you know what? I've had it. That was really hurtful and personal and I don't feel okay. So um, I'm not here to say, you know, one hurts more than the other. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that when a white person calls me the N-word, that contributes to a system that started hundreds of years ago with my ancestors who were literally picked up minding their own business and dragged all the way to the United States and they faced serious amounts of trauma that still affect my family today, still affect me today. And, you know, that is what you're saying to me, is this is who you are. You are this trauma that was not your fault and, you know, seven generations later is still affecting you, right? When, <clears throat> when a person of color says something hurtful to a white person based on race, it is not contributing to a larger system in that sense. It's, it's a very interpersonal relationship that's happening right then and there, but it is not contributing to a huge system of inequality and um, oppression in the same sense, right? So... That is why, to me, reverse racism is a very, very harmful thing to say. Because you're saying that that interaction weighs the same historically um, that a racist interaction um, weighs. And that is very, very different and unfair to say. 
although you can experience racial prejudice, right? Like I could have a lot of racial prejudice against white people. Um, it doesn't have the same systemic effects as racism, which is, you know, way, way more historically oppressive. So to me, when people say reverse racism, it is, it is a little bit hurtful. Um, and I'm not saying that in that moment you weren't feeling very hurt by what the person said. And, you know, you're entitled to those feelings and they are valid. But you cannot say that it, it holds the same, like, systemic effects that racism against someone like me would. Um, and then, you know, you get into the argument and then, then it gets brought up, like, what is, uh, like, righteous anger, right? And righteous anger is the concept that, you know, somebody did something to you first, so when you do it back to them, it's more justifiable in some way because they did it to you first. And to me, that's, I don't, I don't really, like, I understand it, and I think that that could be an explanation for why somebody does something like that. But at the same time, if we're really, you know, thinking about this critically and trying to, um, to get through this together, it is understandable and you, you do need to take some time to like dismantle that within yourself and maybe like not hold all these prejudices for people, but it, it is understandable why it would be that way. Um, but for me, you know, when I, when I start to experience those feelings, I try really hard to remember that, um, you know, oftentimes somebody just isn't aware of what they're doing to me and I can choose to disengage from that or I can choose to, you know, argue my case. But either way, um, I, I really think that it's important that we see that distinction between racism and racial prejudice because um, at the end of the day, one means a lot a lot more of a historical oppression than the other does. Um, what have you seen in terms of uh, our churches when it comes to participation in systemic racism or uh, interpersonal racism? You know, we're people who believe in peace and justice. And how are we doing? So to me, I think it's, it's difficult, right? You see some churches really caring about this stuff. And you see some churches you know, being like, oh, it's a pandemic. Why are we even focusing on this right now? We've got bigger fish to fry, right? And so to me, I have seen a lot of false dichotomy like that. Um, I'm going to be honest with you where, you know, it's, well, we can't deal with racism right now because we're in the middle of dealing with this, right? And it does not have to be one or the other. And I think also there are some churches who are really taking this seriously and that matters to me a lot because some of these churches like don't even have any people of color in the congregation but they're saying to themselves you know we got to deal with this it's a really big issue for us and we're contributing to it and to me that is very important because as as a peace church you know we need to be striving for these things article 22 in our mennonite confession of faith is about peace justice and non-resistance for goodness sakes right so like we've got to deal with this stuff um, we're called to it. Like we are, we agreed to this. This isn't like our whole constitution. So we've got to figure this out, and we've got to um, genuinely um, look within ourselves and question, um, like, what are we doing to 
to contribute to this because like one of my favorite, you know, mantras of the Black Lives Matter movement is silence is violence, right? And as a peace church, we can't be silent anymore. You know, it's really important that we look at our confession of faith seriously and uh, and work with that. That's right. Ar- Article 22. Right. Yes, that one. <laughs> Did you memorize all the articles of the confession of faith? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, yeah. How, and, and, you know, w- would you give some... Um, maybe more specific examples of where you have seen people either, you know, go both ways of not hitting the mark and doing a good job, like um, in terms of your own experiences in the Mennonite church. Um, I don't know if you're willing to share like uh, if instances of, of encountering racism, but then also where have you seen the beauty of people trying to work towards something better? Well, I'll start by by saying that um, I try to think of it in terms of how much I myself have learned about my own internalized prejudice and racism. Because even as a, as a person of color, even as a brown woman, I carry so much prejudice. Uh, like when I think back of the words that I was using when I was younger, like as a teenager, I'm like horrified, right? Like the things that we've learned and the the, <laughs> the things that we've we've learned that are not acceptable to say. Um, like I have memories of like, for example, standing in the kitchen with my uncle making jokes and I'm like, oh my gosh, if that had ever been caught on video, like I wouldn't have a job, right? Like, no, I'm serious. Like, I I feel I feel for for some of the politicians and whatnot, and and not not because I I don't think that they should have known better, but because we all should have known better, and now I know better, and and so we all have a lot of growing to do, right? And so I start. I start with that. I start with the with, with the vulnerability because I know that that is that is a way to to create space so that others don't feel again the guilt and the shame and the and the you know ton of weight on their backs that they need to carry around um, this this responsibility that feels more of a burden that that's something that you do out of love, right? the vulnerability that we share with each other in love, right? Because we care, because we want to do it, because we, that's what we're called to do. So, so I, I say things like, yeah, like w- when an indigenous person walks in the church, like sometimes I do look twice and I'm like, what is this person doing here? And then I'm like, well, I hope that someone has welcomed them and I hope someone has made sure that they're all right. And I hope that, you know, we are being a welcoming church. But sometimes I do think twice. And I've preached on that. And I preached on how I am sometimes driving by. And I do and I do catch myself being prejudiced against the person panhandling on the corner, right? We all have these thoughts. We all have these prejudices. 
whether it's a person of color or whether it's poverty or whether it's disability or whether like we do. And so we need to acknowledge it so that we can actively work against it. Right. That's how it starts. And I and I thank God for for my professor Judy Mullet at Eastern Mennonite University that taught me that in social social psych. Right. You need to name these things that you know you carry within you so that you can actively work against them. Not so that you can be eaten up by the shame of them, but that you can be a better person so that you are so that you are actively deconstructing them within you. Right. So I know in the church we have just tons and tons and tons of these things that we need to dismantle them but we need to name them first we need to know what they are right so i don't know if i'm answering the question but those are the thoughts that came to my head uh when i when i thought of it and sure i can talk about experiences but but those are though that's the the thing that i really wanted to communicate i carry a lot of these prejudices and I know that the church does too, but we need to name them so that we can actually work at them. I want to thank you both for, for sharing. This has been great. Um, I, I, I paused on what, this whole idea of diversity and difference. This seems to me like one of the defining, defining issues of our time, how to live with it well, how to live into it better. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could, one or both of you could comment on how, to, how do we actually pull apart the, are those, are those words the same thing? Um, I think of even my experience here in Southern Alberta, um, down the road is the jail and I go there sometimes to sit with people in support groups. And I was, I remember one session we had two women, one of whom had a, a, a story where she had reclaimed her life by going back to her cultural practices and how she had, um, embraced her, her Blackfoot heritage and, and her regalia and all these things. And, the woman beside her had a similar story, except for she had embraced a very extreme form of fundamental Christianity, fundamentalist Christianity. And I think most of the people in that room would say one was being authentically indigenous and one wasn't. But 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 then when I think about it, it, it feels like, well, this is an example of diversity. Right? This is real diversity, not token diversity. Right. And that's true in so many areas of our culture. And so I wonder how, how, how do we think well about diversity not just as a, as a kind of a of an idol that we aspire to but something actually that reflects the complexity of individual humanity and and lived experience to me there are like two really big fundamental things that change the way that i think about this and one is um the um the youtube or the ted talk the ted talk the danger of single story right that ted talk um, to me, like it opened my eyes. I was like, oh my goodness, this is a hundred percent like what it is, right? So as soon as you are putting somebody in that box and seeing them just as that one thing that you've been tunnel visioned on, you are contributing to difference because it is a very like we are on this side of the line and you are there. Right? And you follow all these things and that's how you are and perfect, great, that's awesome. But then um, diversity is understanding that there's like a very big dynamic and things are fluid and there isn't, you know, like just this very tiny 
vision of what people are and who they are and what they can do and why they can do it. And to me, it's very important that we start to see other people in three-dimensional ways. Like, you know, you, you meet somebody and immediately your head goes to, okay, so they fall into this category and this category and this category. You know, you do the little AI thing and you put them all in this one algorithm. But unfortunately, like, it doesn't work that way. So when, um, when you do that, you're pigeonholing someone, right? And you're saying you can only be this great because I've decided before knowing anything about you that you can only be like this. And to me, that's very, that's difference. Drawing a line in the sand right away and saying, we are different in this way and it's never going to be overcome. And to me, that is why we live in such a polarized world. And that's why it's either this or that, black or white. You know, there's no uh, room for this dynamic three-dimensional person to exist in. And um, that is a really big harm that's been done to many people and even with you sharing those stories about those individuals in jail I think about that as well right like they've both been put in these boxes and now um it's it's going to be hard for somebody to to reconcile with the person who turned back to fundamental Christianity or it might be hard for somebody to reconcile with the person who has you know gone back to their traditional indigenous roots and it doesn't need to be that way right like that is not the sole identifier of these people, but to somebody who sees difference and not diversity, um, you see somebody's identity just based on a few things, a few attributes of their character, and, and that is the problem. Diversity is not that. Diversity is seeing somebody for who they truly are and allowing room for growth and change within those people and yes, recognizing that there are differences, but they're not unreconcilable. They don't make a person, you know, suddenly a write-off. It's really important that we we view these um, these diversities as like um, dynamic and engaging and ways for people to be more than what we thought they were. Where difference is ways for people to be less than, you know, they are. Oh. Well, you know, I uh, I want to be <laughs> respectful of our time. We're already over time. <laughs> and uh, it, there's just a lot to talk about. I know we didn't even get to all the questions. Um, and I don't know if Carrie and Ryan wanted to add anything more. But I just I just hope that that you would be able just to say a quick word about about your hope. Like where what is the things that you're doing together with the the support group and the, the things you did at Sargent and you know other people are calling for 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 you to share your experiences and wisdom like what is your hope for the Mennonite church you you could be as specific as sergeant or just Mennonite church or just church or whatever like however you want to answer that um where do you hope we're moving to so for me um i see like, you know, in my dream where the butterflies are flying around and everyone's holding hands and singing kumbaya and we're like eating raw kukin and also other treats that are not from our own traditional faith. Okay, so what I see is everybody um, caring enough to educate themselves to um, like, you know, s some level reading reading something, watching a TikTok if you ain't got time. I don't know. However you want to educate yourself, that's on you. I'm cool with it. But 
just, you know, putting in the effort to actually get to a place where we could have conversations like we're having with you, like we have with other people, that everybody in the church would actually care enough to do some some personal education. And then once that's done, um, meeting together to discuss these ideas and talk about them and bounce them off of each other as a church and really care about it as a church. And then once that's happened, you know, sharing these ideas outside of your own church, I think is really important as well. You know, like going to somebody else's church and being like, hey, what do you guys think about this? Or educating somebody, not because you you have to, but because it matters to you, because, you know, you, you know people in your church who identify as a person of color, and to you, they're your brother and sister and sibling in Christ. So you, you care about what happens to them, and you care about um, dismantling these systems within yourself and within your institution. And I think, you know, if everybody tried their best to do that, I know it's not a perfect plan, but if everybody tried and, you know, at least got some baseline education with respect to that, I think that would be a really good place to start. For me, beyond um, the issue of race, um, I think my hope is that the church would be more relevant. I think um, for however long the church has been, at least the Mennonite church that I know has been fairly comfortable in singing their hymns, sitting in their pews, supporting MCC, which is a very feel good, you know, feeling. And, uh, and, and, you know, some people get involved in that work and volunteer, but overall we, we like being involved in worship and, and that's the extent of our, of our church involvement and being a Christian which, by the way, I don't really like that word. Uh, I've grown to really dislike the word Christian and Christianity a lot. Uh, I like Jesus, Jesus follower. Um, so for me, being a Jesus follower is so much more than that. Like I said uh, before, part of part of taking on this faith is dealing with some of the baggage of the movement and what it left behind. And part of that is, is uh, what my ancestors did. And uh, for many people like myself, it is, it is uh, a very complex thing because I have both indigenous and Spanish heritage, right? And so what my ancestors did to my other ancestors, right? What my Christian ancestors did to my indigenous ancestors. And, and how, do you, how do you work at that? How do you work at repairing that? Um, but the, the responsibility that you take on when you say, I am a Jesus follower is feeding the poor, the hungry, clothing, you know, the ones in need, 
working at these at dismantling these systems which who would have thought would have gotten so big and out of control but jesus came to set the prisoners free and yet we have more incarcerated people now than probably were alive when jesus was walking around right and so it is it is such a crazy thing to think about that there is so much work for us Jesus followers or Christians. <laughs> and yet we are we're more focused on what's gonna what songs we're gonna sing on Sunday <laughs> than actually doing the work. So that's my hope. That some sometime we're gonna wake up and say, Man, there's work to do and we're gonna wow. get to work. Well, thank you. Um, and thank you for being gracious uh, with your time. I know we've gone over what we thought, um, but but you have uh, some really great things to say and just appreciate you taking the time to, to share your stories and your voices and uh, being uh, being together with us here. Nice to meet you both. Thanks for sharing today. Yeah, thanks everyone. This was really, um, it was really nice, cathartic even. <laughs> Thank you. Mm, thank you so much. Before we wrap up this episode of the Menocast, we want to take a moment to give away another resource. This giveaway is co-sponsored by Herald Press and Common Word. For this episode, we're giving away the book entitled Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance by Drew G.I. Hart. This book is published by Herald Press, and if you want to find more amazing titles that Herald Press is putting out, go to heraldpress.com. Also, you can find this book and many other Anabaptist resources at the Common Word Bookstore and Resource Center. Go to commonword.ca, or if you are in Winnipeg, visit Common Word on the campus of Canadian Mennonite University. The staff at Common Word are always so helpful and generous with their time, wanting to provide the right resources for you and for your church community. So give them a call or send them an email or visit the website uh, or drop in. And I'm sure you're going to find lots of great resources for you there. All you have to do in order to win a copy of Drew Hart's book is to go to the Menocast's Facebook page. Go to the Facebook page, like the page, and you will automatically be entered into a draw to win a copy of the book. Well, again, we want to say thank you to River and Andrea for joining us and they, the work that they continue to do in our churches to start these conversations. And honestly, I, I feel a little bit bad for you, Ryan and Carrie, because um, and not, I mean, not specifically, I mean, more in the category of like, you both are, you know, uh, have a, you know, a white heritage background, you would be seen in our country as, mm -hmm. yeah, kind of regular white folk. Um, when you hear things like systemic racism, uh, white fragility, uh, and, and, you know, things like what River was talking about when it comes to reverse racism, I'm just curious how that how that makes you both feel because I know that a lot of people can it's it's hard to hear that right and especially to talk about privilege when personally you might not feel like you have it 
so I, I'm curious, what, what is that experience like for you? And how do you feel like being part of this conversation? Well, that's a big question. I mean, I have come to understand that I do have privilege. And I think it's important to recognize that. I'm not sure, like, accept it, but to recognize that and then, like, maybe think about how can I use that to the advantage of others? Or how can I give away that privilege? Like, are there opportunities for me in my ministry, in my work, to to let go of privilege and to give away? Because I think when you say you don't have it, I think that's insulting to people who experience their lives without the privilege of their skin color, right? Um, so, yeah, I definitely experience, like, white guilt, Um and thinking about, like, of nothing I have done, I have come into this privilege in my life. Um, so, yeah, I think it's continually doing the work of recognizing it, of trying to deconstruct it, and be a part of a society that's working towards better equality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, think you, I don't think you should feel bad at all, Moses. I think that there's... Um, it's... I mean, I, th- I think that the whole idea of, 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 of acknowledging those areas in our lives and in our communities where by virtue of history and uh, structures that preceded us, some people have um, privileges and um, opportunities that others don't is sort of, it should be basic to, that awareness should be, should be basic to any Christian's a- approach to the world, I think. I mean, Jesus was always... Um, elevating and and creating space for for voices that were not in in dominant positions and 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 so those of us who come to learn by for through whatever means that we happen to inhabit those positions it should be it should be a fairly basic outworking of our faith to say okay well which are the voices that uh that, that need to be um elevated um so I, I I don't think that um, I mean white guilt. Um, sure, yeah. It's, it, there's times where, where where it's easy to feel guilty, but guilt is it can be a fairly useless emotion. Um, there's times probably where where it's where it's useful, but there aren't that many. I don't think. Um, and so the uh, like like Carrie said, the next question is always once once you become aware of it and you be, and and you and you actually listen to the experiences of others and learn from them, then the question is becomes. How, what next? How do we live together in better ways? Yeah. And, and I think coming back to what we were talking about before the interview with diversity, um, you know, to me, the di- diversity in terms of um, in terms of like celebrating and learning from one another is, is such a is so dear to my heart. Like I really long for us as a church to to be um more welcoming and inclusive to share power with people who come from different backgrounds uh, and not for the sake of like, you know, it's the trend or being politi- politically correct or, you know, that's, you know, I, I actually think we have so much to gain from that. Um, and we just have to figure out how is it that we get there, right? Like the question of, okay, how do we actually live into that? Like, how do we, how do we celebrate uh, each other you know, like to be to be diverse doesn't mean that we're flat, like everybody is just the same. We are different. We do have different backgrounds, upbringings, cultures, languages, uh, and, and we don't want to get rid of that, right? So how is it that we can be 
curious um, about one another and, and still be respectful. Uh, I know, like we were talking before, you know, this question of where are you from or where are you really from? Well, what if you're really genuine and you just really want to know because you care about somebody or you like you're genuinely curious and you're not trying to be racist about it or anything like that? Is there still space for that? Do, do you both feel like you are kind of limited in, in what you're allowed to say or the curiosity you're allowed to have in, in these spaces now? I think it's about how we go about things and relationships, right? If I don't have a relationship with someone and the only thing I know about them is their image and the only thing they know I know about them is what I'm seeing and then I ask, where are you really from? Like, yeah, that's racist, uh, definitely. But if I have a relationship with them and I'm getting to know them and it's along in a myriad of other questions, getting to know each other, that's mutual and back and forth, then I think that's different. Um, so it's about maybe how we ask the question um, or leaving it at where are you from? And if they state a place in Canada, then you're like, awesome. Um, I think it's, I think some, in some of those moments of curiosity, it's just changing it a little bit, changing the question, changing the narrative, changing it. And as a, per, a white person of privilege, I have to look at myself and how I am being perceived and how my actions and questions might be landing and being aware of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think the how is, is, is so important. Um, maybe the most important, um, in, in how we approach these conversations. Um, yeah, I think I, you asked like, do you feel limited in, in, in what you can ask? And, and yeah, there are times probably where I do. It's not, it's not the worst thing in the world if I feel that way either. I mean, if, if nothing else, it's, it's a, it's a cause for pause and to, and to, and to ponder how, a, is this conversation something I should pursue? B, how should I pursue it? Those are important questions to consider whenever we're talking to someone. Um, but I do worry about the, the, the fate of curiosity in, in, a, in, in a world where um, a question like, where are you from, is, is kind of out of bounds. Um, because speaking personally, when, when I ask it, it's, it's almost always because I want to get to know a human being better. And I want to know more about what formed them and what shaped them and what influence what influences they've had that I don't know anything about. Um, and I've been asked that question when I've traveled in Colombia and um, in Palestine and Israel. And, and I, I usually like being asked that question because it, it opens up a, a, a space where, where difference can be explored and where um, radically different experiences of the world can come together and, and, and we can it can rub off on each other a bit. So I. I'm a big fan of curiosity, and I, and, I, and I would hate for the way that we talk about race and, and the implicit or explicit structures that we, or, or boundaries around conversation that we have to rule out um, or, or, to, or to stifle the curiosity that I think is such a huge part of, of our life together as human beings. I think part of the issue is where, where are we coming at with these questions, and um, is the curiosity leading to... Uh, deeper relationship and a celebration of difference or is it leading to yeah. uh you know asking the question so we know how to box people in uh, and we know where people right. fit in in the order of things mm -hmm. uh, which i think for a lot of people of color that's kind of the experience um so yeah. so if we can foster that curiosity and open dialogue and conversation um i think there's a lot of opportunity there for us to grow and also to expand our horizons and all of that. 
Anything else you want to add? This is this is the kind of conversation that we could uh, it could literally go on for six <laughs> hours. Um, there's, there's there's so many different rabbit trails we could wander down. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's important to keep it going, and and I hope we will in the next in the next season. Yeah. Well, I think this would be a great place for us to wrap up not only this episode but also this whole pilot season. Uh, it's been so great to get into these conversations, and I really look forward to where this project is going to be going. And for any of you listening, just watch out for bonus content that we might be throwing out your way. But for all you listeners and people who have engaged with us over this uh, past pilot season, we want to thank you so much for listening to The Menocast. You can find us at themenocast.com. Listen to episodes on our website or subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Leave us a review if you like what you heard and join us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at The Menocast. We would love to hear from you if you have comments, questions, or suggestions. You can contact us through our website or at themenocast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Nick Duick for creating our music and our advisory group for guiding us along the way. We would also like to thank Common Word for partnering with us to give away awesome resources and Mennonite Church Eastern Canada for providing us with a seed grant to get this project going. Lastly, I want to thank my co-hosts Carrie Lane and Ryan Duick for making this whole pilot season uh, a reality. I'm Moses Falco. Until next time.